Welcome to Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, Volume 1. We are continuing to read at page 197 for this reading, which is chapter, uh, I'm sorry, lecture 14th. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of the Commentaries on the Book of the Prophet Jeremiah and the Lamentations by John Calvin, Volume 1, which we hope you find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14.6 Lecture 14 If thou... Sorry, verse 1. If thou wilt return, O Israel, saith the Lord, return unto me. And if thou wilt put away thine abominations out of my sight, then shalt, then shalt thou not remove. The prophet no doubt requires here from the people a sincere return to God inasmuch as they had often pretended to confess their sins and had given many signs of repentance while they were acting deceitfully with him. As when they had often felt falsely with God, dealt falsely with God and with his prophets, Jeremiah bids them to return to God without any disguise and in good faith. With regard to what is here substantially taught, this is the prophet's meaning, but there is some ambiguity in the words. Some read thus, if thou returnest Israel to me, saith Jehovah, connecting to me, non-English word, with the first clause, then they read separately, non-English word, thou shalt rest. And so they think that what follows in the repetition of the, of the same thing, if thou wilt take away thine abominations from before me, thou shalt not migrate. That is, I will not cast thee out as I have threatened. Others take the verb, non-English word, to shub, in the same sense, for it is the same verb repeated. If thou wilt return Israel, return to me. The prophet doubtless bids the Israelites to return to God in sincerity and without any disguise, and not to act falsely with him, as they had often done. I have as yet mentioned only what others have thought, but in my judgment the most suitable rendering is, If thou wilt return Israel, rest in me, as we say in French. Rest then in me. And then a definition is given. If thou wilt take away thine abominations, for the copulative is to be taken as expletive or explanatory, from my sight, and wilt not wander. What some of those I have referred to have given as their rendering, if thou wilt return to me, Israel, thou shalt rest, I wholly reject, as it seems forced. But I allow this reading. If thou wilt return, Israel, thou shalt rest in me. Or this, if thou, sh if thou wilt return Israel, return to me. For the difference is not great. 
The prophet here evidently condemns the hypocrisy which the Israelites had practiced, for they had often professed themselves as ready to render obedience to God, and afterwards proved that they had made a false profession. Since then deceit and emptiness have been so often found in them, the prophet demands here in the name and by the command of God that they should in truth and sincerity return to him. If this reading be approved, Israel return to me. The intimation is that they ever took circuitous courses that they might not return directly to God, for it is usual with hypocrites to make a great show of repentance and at the same time to shun God. If then we follow this reading, the prophet means this. Israel, there is no reason for thee hereafter to think that thou gainest anything by boasting with thy mouth of thy repentance. Return to me. Know that thou hast to do with God, who is not deceived, as he never deceives any. Return then faithfully to me, and let thy conversion be sincere, and in no way deceptive. But if the verb, teshub, be taken in the other sense, there would be no great difference in the meaning. If thou wilt return, Israel, thou shalt rest in me. That is, thou shalt, thou shalt hereafter have nothing to do with idols, and with thy perverted ways. Thus the prophet briefly shows that the return of Israel would be nothing except they acquiesced in God alone and wandered not after vain objects, as they had often done. And with this view corresponds what follows, even if thou takest away, for the copulative, as I have said, is to be taken as explanatory, thine abominations from my sight, and wilt wander no more. Non-English Hebrew words. Vela tanud. For the vice which Jeremiah meant especially to condemn was this, that Israel, while pretending a great show of religion, yet vacillated and did not devote themselves with all their heart to God, but were changeable in their purpose. This vice, then, is what Jeremiah justly condemns, and hence I am disposed to embrace this view. Israel, if thou wilt return, rest to me. That is, continue constantly faithful to me. But how can this be done? Even if thou wilt take away thy abominations, and if thou wilt not wander, for thy levity and inconstancy hitherto has been well known. Footnote. The best rendering is that which connects to me with the former clause. The end of the verse, as Grotius observes, proves this. If they return to God, they were to return from captivity, and if they cast away their abominations, they were not to be vagabonds or to wander any more. This seems to be the meaning. The non-English letter before non-English word in the last clause is left out in ten manuscripts and in the Vulgate, Targum, and Syriac. The verse then would be as follows. Verse 1. If thou wilt return, Israel, saith Jehovah, to me, thou shalt be restored, that is, from captivity. If thou wilt remove thy abominations from my sight, Thou shalt not be a wanderer. Editor. End footnote. Whatever view we may take, this passage deserves to be noticed as being against hypocrites who dare not openly to reject prophetic warnings. But while they show some tokens of repentance, they still by winding shun the, pre- the presence of God. They indeed testify by their mouth that they seek God, but yet have recourse to subterfuges. And hence, I have said that this passage is remarkably useful so that we may know that God cannot be pacified 
by those fallacious trifles which hypocrites bring forward, but that he requires a sincere heart and that he abominates all dissimulation. It is therefore expressly said, If thou wilt take away thy abominations from my sight. For hypocrites ever regard display and seek to be approved by men and are satisfied with their approbation. But God calls their attention to himself. It must at the same time be observed that he cannot be deceived, for he is the searcher of hearts. It follows verse 2. And thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. And the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. <clears throat> Here the prophet goes on with the same subject. For he denudes those flatteries by which they thought that God could be pacified. For when they had his name in their mouth, they thought it sufficient for their defense. What? Do we not call upon God? Do we not ascribe to him his due honor when we swear by his name? There is in the prophet's word a part given for the whole, for swearing is to be taken for the whole of God's worship. When therefore the Israelites made a profession of God's name, they thought themselves absolved from all guilt. Hence the prophet says, Thou shalt swear truly in the name of God. That is, ye ye are indeed self-confident because an external profession of religion seems to you to be a sort of expiation. Whenever ye seek to contend with God, ye boast that you are Abraham's seed and swear by the name of God, but ye are sacrilegious when ye thus falsely profess God's name. Swear then, he says, in truth. We hence see how the words of the prophet harmonize together. He had said that Israel had hitherto dealt falsely with God because they had not performed what in words they had promised, for they went astray. And now he adds that it availed the Israelites nothing that they openly called on God and showed themselves to be his people by an external worship. This, he says, is nothing except ye worship God in truth and in judgment and in righteousness. Truth is no doubt to be taken here for integrity, as we shall see in the fifth chapter. It is the same as though he had said that God is not rightly worshipped, except when the heart is free from all guile and deceit. In short, he means that there is no worship of God without sincerity of heart. But the truth of which the prophet speaks is especially known by judgment and righteousness, that is, when men deal faithfully with one another and render to all their right and seek not their own gain at the expense of others. When, therefore, equity and uprightness are thus observed by men, then is fulfilled what is required here by the prophet. For then they worship not God fallaciously, nor with vain words, but really show what they do without disguise that they do, without disguise, fear and reverence God. What follows is is variously explained by interpreters. But the prophet, I have no doubt, does here indirectly reprove the Israelites, because God's name had been exposed to many reproaches and mockeries when the heathens said that there was no power in God to help the Israelites, and when the people themselves expostulated with God as though they had a just cause for contending with him. What? God had promised that we should be models of his blessing, but we are exposed to the reproaches of the heathens? How can this be? Since then, the Israelites thus deplored their lot and cast the blame on God. The prophet gives this answer. Bless themselves, shall the nations and glory in him. 
Some refer this to the Israelites, but not correctly. It had indeed been said to Abraham, In thy seed shall all nations be blessed, or shall bless themselves. But this blessing had its beginning, as it is here noticed by the prophet. For we must look for the cause or the fountain of this blessing. How could the nations bless themselves through the seed or through the children of Abraham, except God, the author of the blessing, manifested his favor towards the children of Abraham? Very aptly, then, the prophet does say here, Then bless themselves in God shall all the nations, and in him shall they glory. That is, ye are to be blamed that God's curse is upon you and renders you objects of reproach to all people, and also that heathens disdain and despise the name of God. For your impiety has constrained God to deal more severely with you than he wished. For he is ever ready to show his paternal clemency. What then is a hindrance that the nations bless not themselves in God and glory in him? That is, that pure religion does not flourish through the whole world and that all nations do not come to you and unite in the worship of the only true God. The hindrance is your impiety and wickedness. This is the reason why God is not glorified and why your felicity is not everywhere celebrated among the nations. We now perceive the meaning of the prophet, that the Jews groundlessly imputed blame to God because they were oppressed by so many evils, for they had procured for themselves all their calamities, and at the same time gave occasion to heathens to profane God's name by their reproaches. <coughs> Footnote. This is a very lucid and satisfactory exposition. The import of the passage is very clearly given. A simpler version may be made, and such as will exhibit the meaning more plainly. When two vows appear, they may often be rendered when and then. So here, verse 2, When thou shalt swear, live does Jehovah, in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. Then call him blessed shall nations, and in him shall they glory. To swear is to avow Jehovah as our God, the verb bless and glory are both in hispal, which has commonly a reciprocal sense, but not always. This and the preceding verse belong to the last chapter. Editor. End footnote. It follows, verse 3, For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. The prophet still pursues the same subject, for he reproves the hypocrisy of the Israelites because they sought to discharge their duty towards God only by external ceremonies, while their hearts were full of deceits and of every kind of impiety and wickedness. Hence he says that God required this from the Jews, to plow again the fallow and not to sow among thorns. It is the most suitable comparison, for scripture often compares us to a field when it represents us as God's heritage, and we have been chosen by God as a peculiar people for this end, that he may gather fruit from us as a husbandman gathers produce from his fields. We can indeed add nothing to what God is, but there is a fruit which he demands, so that our whole life is to be devoted to his glory. God, then, would not have us to be idle and fruitless, but to bring forth some fruit. But what is done by hypocrites? They sow, that is, they show some concern, yea, they pretend great ardor when God exhorts them to repent and when he invites them. 
They then make a great bustle, yet they mar everything by their own mixtures, the same as though one scattered his seed among thorns. But it will be of no avail thus to cast seed among thorns, for the ground ought to be well cleared and prepared. Hence God laughs to scorn this preposterous care and diligence, in which hypocrites pride themselves and says that they busy themselves without any advantage. For it is the same as though an husbandman had wholly lost his seed. For when the ground is full of briars and thorns, the seed, though it may grow for a time, cannot yet bring forth fruit. For this reason God bids the Israelites to plow the fallows. Footnote. Literally, plow for yourselves the plowing, or the plowland, or fallow for yourselves the fallow. They were not to sow a land once plowed, but they were to plow again. End footnote. As though he had said that they were like a rough ground, which is full of thorns, and that therefore there was, an, there was need of unusual and by no means a common cultivation. For when thorns and briars grow in a field, of what benefit will it be to cast seed there? Nay, a field cannot be well prepared by the plow alone, so that it may produce fruit but much labor is also necessary, as is the case with fallow ground, which is called esarte in our language. The prophet then intimates that the people had become hardened in their vices, and that they were not only full of vices, like a field left uncultivated for two years, but that their vices were so deep that they could not be well cleared away by plowing alone, except they were drawn up by the roots as they were like thorns and brambles, which have been growing in a field for many years. We hence see that not only impiety and contempt of God and other sins of the people of Israel are referred to by the prophet, but also their perverseness, for they had so hardened themselves for many years in their vices that there was need not only of the plow, but also of instruments, other instruments, to tear up the thorns, to eradicate those vices which had formed deep roots. As then he had warned before them, I'm sorry, as then he had before warned them that they would labor in vain except they returned to God with sincerity of heart and acquiesced in him. So here he bids them to examine their life that they might not cast away their seed like hypocrites who formerly acknowledged their sins. Hence he bids them wholly to shake off their vices which were hid within according to what they do, who tears up thorn, who tear up thorns and briars in a field, which had been long neglected and left without being cultivated. It now follows verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord, and take away the foreskins of your heart, ye men of Judah in, in, and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire, and burn that none can quench it, because of the evil of your doings. The prophet expresses here more clearly what he had before said metaphorically or by a figure. For he had bidden them to eradicate their vices according to what is usually done by breaking up the fallow ground. But now dropping that figure, he clearly shows what was to be done, and yet the clause continues, contains what is figurative. He calls their attention to circumcision, which was a symbol of renovation, as though he had said, that they sufficiently understood what they were to do, except they were wholly unteachable. For why, he says, 
has circumcision been enjoined? Does not God by this symbol show that if a man rightly aspires after true religion, he ought to begin by putting off all the evil propensities of his flesh? Is he not to deny himself and to die as it were both to himself and to the world? For circumcision includes all this. Then the prophet shows that the Israelites had no excuse, that they went not astray through mistake or through ignorance, but they were acting perversely and deceitfully with God. For circumcision, by which they had been initiated into God's service, sufficiently taught them that God is not rightly nor faithfully faithfully served except when men deny themselves. We now then see what the prophet meant by these words when he bids them to be circumcised to God and to take away the foreskin of their heart. Be ye circumcised, he says, to Jehovah. Circumcision was their great boast, but only before men, for nothing but ambition and vanity ruled in them, while they openly exulted and boasted that they were God's holy and peculiar people. Hence, the prophet bids them not to value what was of no importance, but to become circumcised to Jehovah. That is, he bids them, bids them not to seek applause before the world, but seriously to consider that they had to do that they had to do with God. And hence he adds, take away the foreskin of your heart, as though he had said, when God commanded the seed of Abraham to be circumcised, in Genesis chapter 17, 10 through 12, it was not his, sub- his object to have a small portion of skin cut off, but he had regard to something higher, even that ye should be circumcised in heart. The prophet, in short, teaches us here what Paul had more clearly explained in Romans 2.29. Even this, that the letter is of no value before God, but that the spirit is what he requires. For Paul, in these words, means that the external sign is worthless, except accompanied by the reality within. For the literal circumcision mentioned by Paul is merely the external rite. In the same manner, baptism with us may be called the letter, when there is no repentance and faith. But the spirit or spiritual circumcision is the denial of self. It is renovation. And in a word, that true conversion to God of which the prophet speaks here. Nor has Moses been silent on this point. For in the 10th chapter of Deuteronomy, he shows that the Jews greatly deceived themselves if they thought that they did all that God required when they were circumcised in the flesh. Flesh. Circumcise, he says, your hearts to the Lord. He indeed reminds us in another place that this is altogether the work of God. But though God circumcises the heart, yet this exhortation that men are to circumcise themselves is not superfluous, and the same is the case with baptism. For when Paul exhorts the faithful to fear God and to lead a holy life, he refers to baptism. It is yet certain that men do not bestow on themselves what God signifies by the sign of baptism, but he counsels them to seek from God the grace of his spirit that they might in, not in vain be sealed by the external rite of baptism while destitute of its reality. When therefore the prophet bids the Israelites to take away the foreskin of their heart, it is the same as though he had said that they were indeed liberal enough with regard to ceremonies and outward worship but that there were empty masks, these were empty masks unless preceded by a right disposition within. 
<coughs> and he addresses the Jews and also the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for they thought that they had far excelled the Israelites, on whom God had inflicted so grievous a punishment. He then shows that the tribe of Judah, nay, that the very inhabitants and citizens of Jerusalem were not better than others, and that they could not be exempted, as it were, by privilege, except they returned to a right mind, except they seasonably and from the heart repented. He then adds, lest my fury go forth like fire. The prophet here expressly declares that the Jews were not to wait until God came forth as an avenger, for then, he says, it would be too late to repent. In short, he bids them to anticipate in due time the judgment of God, for if once his fury went forth, it would burn like fire so as to consume them, and there would be no extinguishing of it. But if they repented, he holds forth to them the hope of pardon, for the fury of God had not yet gone forth. <clears throat> he afterwards subjoins, on account of the wickedness of your deeds. Footnote. Rather, on account of the evil of your doings. Their doings were evil or wrong, both as to God and man. Impiety seems to be the special evil intended, as their defection from God had been more particularly referred to. Editor and footnote. By these words, the prophet again reproves them sharply and shows that they gained nothing by their evasions. For when God ascends his tribunal and begins to execute his vengeance, then all vain excuses will come to an end, such as that they deserved no such thing or that the atrocity of their sins was not great. God, he says, will, with his own hand, teach you how grievous has been the atrocity of your vices. He will not then deal with you in words. It then follows verse 5. <clears throat> Declare ye in Judah, and publish in Jerusalem, and say, Blow ye the trumpet in the land. Cry, gather together, and assemble, and say, Assemble yourselves, and let us go into the defensed cities. Verse 6. Set up the standard toward Zion. Retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north, and a great destruction. Jeremiah treats his own people here with more severity, for he saw that they were refractory and so obstinate in their vices that they could not, by wise counsels, be restored to the way of safety. Hence he addresses them here as men wholly irreclaimable and to whom instruction proved useless. But though according to the manner of the prophets, he sounds a trumpet for the sake of filling them with terror, he seems yet to speak tauntingly when he bids them to proclaim in Judah and to publish in Jerusalem, as though he had said, When distress shall seize you, you will then by experience perceive that God is angry with you, though today ye believe not my warnings, yet that, may, that God may not indeed by a violent hand bring you back to himself, and as ye seek evasions for yourselves, ye shall sound the trumpet and proclaim, The enemies are coming and are nigh at hand, let therefore everyone flee to Jerusalem and enter into the city and resort into Zion. That is, if we cannot secure our safest our safety in the city, we shall at least be safe in the fortress of Zion. But God, he says, brings an evil on you from the north, and whatever ye may think will be for your safety will be wholly useless. It is, however, proper, especially to regard the prophet as God's herald proclaiming war. And that though he exults over the perverseness, 
he yet declares that, that such will be everywhere the terror that they would seek safety by flight. Sound, he says, in Judah and publish or proclaim in Jerusalem. Agidu announce literally. He speaks not here for the same purposes Joel did, Joel 1, 1, 1 and 15, when he bade them to sound the trumpet. For the latter exhorted the people to repent, but Jeremiah, as I've already said, tauntingly reproves here the people for their obstinacy and perverseness, as though he had said, I see what ye will do when God's vengeance shall come upon you, that ye may not even then repent, for ye will sound the trumpet through the land, let all resort to Zion, as though ye could resist there your enemies and preserve your lives. He does not then bid them to sound the trumpet, but on the contrary, shows what they would do. Some improperly, improperly give this re- rendering, fulfill ye, but the common version is, assemble yourselves. But interpreters seem not to me to have regarded the etymology of the word, for it is the same meaning in Hebrew as when we say, amasevus, gather yourselves and say, Be ye assembled, and let us go into fortified cities. It will indeed be announced to you to seek hiding places to protect you from the assaults of your enemies. If so, raise a banner in Zion, and flee. But God will at the same time bring evil on you from the north. The non-English words, al-tomadu, may be explained in two ways. Stand not, that is, hasten quickly, as it is the case with those in extreme fear, or ye shall not stand, that is, though ye may seek a firm position on Mount Zion, ye shall not yet be able to continue there. The first exposition appears to me the best, as it is more suitable to the context. Footnote. These two verses contain a very spirited address in a style truly poetical. Verse 5. Announce ye in Judah and in Jerusalem publish, and say, Yea, sound the trumpet in the land, proclaim, do it fully, and say, Be assembled, and let us enter into fortified cities. Verse 6. Raise a banner towards Zion, hasten ye, stay not, for an evil am I bringing from the north, and a great destruction. The people of Judah were summoned to enter into fortified cities, and Mount Zion was to be the resort of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Hasten ye. Hasten. This is the meaning of non-English word in Hifthil. See Exodus 9.19, Isaiah 10.31. In chapter 6.1, it is translated, Gather yourselves to flee, but hasten or remove vigorously or quickly will be the best rendering. Editor and footnote. Prayer. Grant, Almighty God, that as we cease not daily to alienate ourselves from Thee by our sins, and as Thou yet kindly exhortest us to repent, and promised us to be appeasable and propitious to us, sorry, propitious to us, O grant that we may not perversely go in our sins, and be ungrateful to Thee for Thy great kindness, but that we may so return to Thee that our whole life may testify that our repentance has been unfeigned, and that we may so acquiesce in thee alone that the depraved lusts of our flesh may not draw us here and there, 
but that we may continue fixed and immovable in our purpose, and so labor to obey Thee through the whole course of our life, that we may at length partake of the fruit of our obedience in Thy celestial kingdom, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you don't have a web connection, please request a a free printed catalog. (coughs) If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add, A-D-D, in the line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent us your email address, you'll be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you've supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and texts, etc. SWRB makes available on the web as well as at as well at times of others to our of other best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of this message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way, and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.